Welcome to Music History Monday for December 5th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Myths of Mayhem and Murder. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. Here we go again. It has come to pass. I've been writing and recording these Music History Monday posts for long enough that Monday dates and events have begun to repeat. And as a result, December 5th, which was a Monday in 2016, once again falls on a Monday today. Ordinarily, there are enough events on any given Monday to keep me from having to deal with the same topic. But December 5th is a special date for one particularly terrible musical event, an event that demands to be revisited. Dates that will live in infamy. We consider there are some dates that, for events that mark them, will live in infamy. I would suggest that what qualifies as an infamous date, that is a date we will all remember to our dying day, is generally dependent upon when one was born. For example, for someone born in the United States in 1854, that's 100 years before I was born, those dates of infamy might include March 6th, 1857, the date of the Dred Scott decision, which saw the United States Supreme Court rule seven to two that an enslaved human being, Dred Scott, who had resided in a free state and territory where slavery was prohibited, was not entitled to his freedom, that African Americans were not and could never be citizens of the United States, and that the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which had declared all territories west of Missouri and north of latitude 36 and a half degrees to be free from slavery, was unconstitutional. Some other infamous dates for someone born in 1854. April 12, 1861, the opening of the bombardment of Fort Sumter near Charleston, South Carolina, which initiated the American Civil War. April 14, 1865, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, who died early in the morning of April 15th. Now, for me and my generation, such dates of infamy would include November 22, 1963, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. April 4, 1968, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis, Tennessee. September 11, 2001, we all know what happened on that day. January 6, 2021, again, we all know what happened on that day. For those good people who will be born in 2054, their dates of infamy will, again, reflect their own time and experience. However, 
There are some dates of infamy we can all agree on, whether we were born in 1854, 1954, or 2054. Among them is December 5th, 1791, 231 years ago today, the day Wolfgang Mozart died in his Viennese flat at the age of 35 years, 10 months, and 9 days. As previously observed, December 5th last fell on a Monday in 2016. My Music History Monday post for that day was entitled, Mozart, a Diagnosis. Based on contemporary reports of Mozart's symptoms and modern interpretations of those reports and symptoms, that post offered up what is almost certainly the correct cause of Mozart's death a relapse of rheumatic fever. Today's post, Myths of Murder and Mayhem, will deal with some of the many falsehoods that came to surround Mozart's death almost from the moment of his death. But first, a little background. Mozart in Vienna. In May of 1781, the 25-year-old Wolfgang Mozart quit his day job in the Bishopric of Salzburg and moved to Vienna, there to freelance in what was the hippest musical scene in the German-speaking world. Over the next 10 years, he produced a series of masterworks in virtually every extant genre of music that still, still leaves us shaking our heads in disfreaking belief. But incredibly, painfully, after Mozart's initial success in Vienna, the fickle Viennese public increasingly came to view his music as being overly long and unnecessarily complicated, the result being ever fewer commissions, performances, and publications of his music. As a result, financial problems set in, and by 1789, the now 33-year-old Mozart and his wife Constanze were up to their necks in debt. He became depressed and suffered a seemingly endless series of respiratory infections. In 1790, he composed almost no music at all. So it remains one of those miracles that goes under the heading of, go figure, that beginning in January 1791, Mozart experienced a compositional rebirth. Had his finances improved? Did he have a triumphant performance or premiere? Had he found a brand of socks that really worked for him? No. Even such an experienced psychoanalytical observer as Mozart biographer Maynard Solomon can do no better than to call Mozart's compositional rebirth mysterious. Well, let's hear it for life's little mysteries. In short order, Mozart composed a piano concerto in B-flat major, a string quintet in E-flat major, a series of songs and concert arias, two collections of dances, the operas The Magic Flute and La Clemenza de Tito, The Mercy of Titus, his concerto for clarinet, and the torso of a requiem in D minor. It was thanks to the premiere of the German language opera, or Zingspiel, the Magic Flute, on September 30th, 1791, that Mozart's finances changed virtually overnight. 
It was a smash hit, SRO, standing room only, night after night, and Mozart was on cloud 10. He attended the opera almost every night. On Friday, October 7th, Mozart attended a performance and then went to a restaurant for a post-opera dinner. While waiting for his food, he wrote a long and chatty letter to his wife, Constanzi, who was taking the cure at the spa in nearby Baden, in which Mozart's euphoria is evident. Quote, Dearest, best little wife, I have just come from the opera. It was just as full as usual. One can readily see how much this opera continues to grow. Everyone seems to know about the magnificent reception of my opera." Unquote. And why shouldn't the magic flute have been magnificently received? The thing contains more musical highlights than an Elvis's Greatest Hits album, and Viennese audiences went gaga over it. With Constanzi out of town, Mozart frequently brought friends and family with him to the theater to hear the opera. Mozart describes one such evening in a letter to Constanzi written on October 13, 1791. Quote, I called in the carriage for Salieri and his mistress, Madame Cavalieri, and drove them to my box at the theater. You can hardly imagine how charming Salieri and Cavalieri were and how much they liked not only my music, but everything. They both said that it was a grand opera, worthy to be performed for the grandest festival and before the greatest monarch, and that they would often go to see it, as they had never seen a more beautiful or delightful show." Unquote. Uh, yes, this is the same Antonio Salieri who presumably killed Mozart. More on that in just a moment. Anyway, as these two letters attest, thanks to the magic flute, Mozart's depression had lifted, his faith in the future had been restored, and he had, once again, the world at his feet and his whole life still in front of him. Which all compounds the catastrophe that 53 days after he wrote that last letter, Mozart was dead. Let the conspiracy theories begin. Less than a month after Mozart's death, that death having occurred on December 5th, 1791, the following notice appeared in a Berlin News Weekly. Quote, Mozart is dead. Because his body swelled up after death, some people believe he was poisoned. Now that he is dead, the Viennese will at last realize what they have lost in him. In life, he was constantly the object of cabals, which he at times may well have provoked by his irreverent manner." Unquote. This is the earliest recorded suggestion that Mozart may not have died a natural death. For all the rumors, it wasn't until 1823, 32 years after Mozart's death, that the conspiracy theorists could point their fingers at a suspect, Antonio Salieri, 1750-1825. Here's how that came about.
In October 1823, 32 years after Mozart's death, Antonio Salieri, the former Kapellmeister, that is, the former music director of the Imperial Habsburg Court, was admitted to a hospital called the Vienna Allgemeine Krankenhaus. He was 73 years old and had been in failing health for a while. However, it was his rapidly deteriorating mental state that caused his family to institutionalize him. They simply could no longer take care of him at home. Distraught, disoriented, and depressed, Salieri was caught trying to cut himself with a knife on his second day at the hospital. The rumor flew across Vienna that Salieri had attempted suicide by cutting his own throat. But even more sensational was the news that Salieri was claiming to have killed Mozart. Finally, 32 years after Mozart's passing, there was someone to blame for his death. The rumors that had been floating around since Mozart's death in 1791 were corroborated. An Italian was behind the 35-year-old Mozart's death, and that Italian was Kapellmeister Antonio Salieri himself. Okay, never mind that Salieri was physically enfeebled and mentally deranged when he claimed to have killed Mozart. Never mind that during his rare moments of lucidity, Salieri denied having anything to do with Mozart's death. The pianist Ignaz Moscheles, 1794-1870, visited Salieri in the hospital and left us with this touching account. Quote, the reunion was a sad one. Even the sight of him shocked me, and he spoke to me in broken sentences of his approaching death. Finally, he said these words. Although this is my last illness, I can in all good faith swear that there is no truth to the absurd rumor, you know, I'm supposed to have poisoned Mozart. But no, it's spite, nothing but spite. Tell that to the world, my dear Moscheles. Old Salieri, who's going to die soon, told you that. I was greatly moved, and when the old man cried and thanked me again for my visit after having overwhelmed me with thanks when I arrived, it was time for me to leave quickly so as not to be overcome." Unquote. Never mind that no plausible method has ever been put forward to explain just how Mozart might have been poisoned, although several implausible explanations have been offered, my favorite being poisoned dust in his letters. In fact, Antonio Salieri had no motive to kill Mozart. It's true that the two composers competed with one another and sometimes even clashed but they also collaborated with each other and had, in Mozart's last years, a genuinely cordial relationship. The composer Anselm Hüttenbrenner, 1794-1868, who was as well a close friend of Franz Schubert, was a student of Salieri's. In a memoir of Schubert, Hüttenbrenner wrote something that was well known in Vienna at the time, quote, Salieri did not harbor a grudge against Mozart, 
who had eclipsed him, unquote. You want to talk motive? I'll give you motive. Mozart had much more reason to kill Salieri than Salieri had to kill Mozart. Salieri had the job that Mozart coveted, Kapellmeister of the Habsburg Imperial Court. Salieri had the ear and his music the heart of Emperor Joseph II. Yes, Joseph II liked Mozart's music okay, but found it overly complicated and long. It was Joseph who told Mozart after the premiere of The Abduction from the Seraglio in 1782 that the opera was, quote, too beautiful for our ears, my dear Mozart, and monstrous many notes, unquote. Back to motives for murder. Salieri made scads more money than did Mozart and received far more operatic commissions. His operas were performed more often and were frankly more popular than Mozart's. Just a few days before Salieri's death on May 7, 1825, the following report appeared in the prestigious Viennese newspaper, the Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung. Quote, Our worthy Salieri just cannot seem to die. His body suffers all the pains of old age, and his mind is gone. In moments of hallucination and confusion, they say, he even accuses himself of complicity in the early death of Mozart, a delusion that no one believes except the poor, bewildered old man himself." Unquote. And that might very well have been the end of the story, but for a one-act play that appeared in 1830, five years after Salieri's death, in which a motive for Salieri as murderer was provided by the Russian poet and playwright Alexander Pushkin, 1799-1837. Pushkin's play was entitled Mozart and Salieri. In the play, Salieri is portrayed as a diligent and serious artist who is driven to near madness by Mozart's genius and buffoonery. In the play, Salieri whines, Oh, where is the justice when the sacred gift, immortal genius, comes not in reward for toil, devotion, prayer, and self-sacrifice, but instead shines within the skull of an idiot, an idle hooligan? Pushkin's play was turned into an opera by Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov in 1898 and became the backbone of the play by Peter Schaffer and the movie Amadeus of 1984. That movie won eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. And as much as I do love the movie, it should also have won an award for most insulting and historically inaccurate portrayal of two composers who deserve better, Salieri and Mozart. So back to poor maligned Antonio Salieri. There's no evidence whatsoever that he had anything to do with Mozart's death other than his confession, a confession made in an advanced state of dementia. In fact, Salieri might just as well have confessed to being Blanche Dubois. So, if Mozart was indeed poisoned, how else, ask the conspiracy theorists, 
Can you explain the relatively sudden death of a seemingly healthy 35-year-old man? And Salieri didn't do it? Well then, who did? Ah, so many answers. So little time. George Friedrich Daumer was a German poet and philosopher. He lived from 1800 to 1875. Writing in 1861, Daumer claimed that secret societies had been controlling the fate of humankind for thousands of years. Quote, Human society is occupied and infested by a ghastly and terrible worm, pervaded and imbued by a secret conspiracy, which has turned the ground on which we walk into a volcano, continually threatening eruption and devastation." Unquote. Daumer claimed that among the most dangerous of these secret anti-Christian societies was Freemasonry, which Mozart innocently joined in 1785 at the age of 29. According to Daumer, Mozart revealed Masonic secrets in his opera, The Magic Flute of 1791, for which his punishment was death. In 1910, the anti-Semitic German politician and journalist Hermann Alvart, 1846-1914, extended Daumer's premise in his book, Mehr Licht, which translates as More Light. In Mehr Licht, Alvart, who, by the way, as a member of the German Reichstag from 1892 to 1912, gave a speech in which he called Jews predators and cholera bacilli and demanded that they be exterminated for the good of the German people. In Mehr Licht, Alvart claims that, in fact, it was the Jews who were responsible for Mozart's death. Alvart's premise was taken another step forward by the German psychiatrist and teacher Matilda Spies Ludendorff, 1877-1966, the wife of the World War I German general Erich Ludendorff. Writing in her book, Mozart's Life and Violent Death, published in 1936, Dr. Ludendorff asserts that Mozart was a German patriot who wanted to replace Italian language opera with German language opera. According to Ludendorff, quote, the German people would forever be able to draw strength from his immortal works. And so Mozart earned the hatred of all those who would wish to detach the people from their roots, their nation, and their language, unquote. According to Ludendorff, Mozart was killed by agents of a Jewish-Roman Catholic conspiracy spearheaded by the Jesuits and the Masons, a conspiracy intent on establishing a cosmopolitan Jewish world state, and a partridge in a pear tree. Q. Anon has nothing on Matilda Ludendorff, who was a first-class whack job. Some sources say she was mentally ill, but sadly, Sadly, her ideas were more the rule than the exception in the paranoid conspiracy theory-dominated environment of post-World War I Germany, an environment that found its denouement in Adolf Hitler, the Nazi Party, and the destruction of the German nation in 1945. One would think, one would hope, 
that the end of World War II in 1945 would have brought an end to Mozartian conspiracy theories such as these. It did not. The notion that Mozart was murdered by a Masonic conspiracy continued to be argued by three German doctors, Johannes Dalcho, Gunther Duda, and Dieter Kerner in books published in 1966 and 1971. Kerner's book, published in 1971, is particularly crazy, though we should be relieved to know that even though Kerner was a Matilda Ludendorff fanboy and his book was published by the Ludendorff Press, he does not name the Jews as co-conspirators in Mozart's death. Here's the final clincher on the poisoning theories. In 1969, it was suggested by a German physician named Dr. W. Katner that Mozart had accidentally poisoned himself. According to Dr. Katner, Mozart was treating himself for syphilis with mercury, on which he accidentally overdosed. The only problem with this theory is that there is virtually no evidence whatsoever that Mozart had syphilis in the first place. Let us say it all together. Mozart was not poisoned. Not one of the doctors who attended him in his final days or examined him after his death once mentioned in their reports the possibility that he had been poisoned. So what did kill Mozart? Well, for all the painful details involving Mozart's final illness and death, I would direct your attention back to Music History Monday of December 5, 2016. When we return tomorrow and Dr. Bob prescribes, it will be with Mozart's Requiem, his last work, which he left unfinished at his death. The Requiem played a major role in inspiring the legends of Mozart's death by nefarious means, so in many ways, tomorrow's post will be a continuation of this one. Until then, thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.